الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته لا يقدين أو praise be to Allah was peace and blessings be on the last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day. Uh, before proceeding to the topic, thinking outside of the box, I'd just like to add to my introduction probably the most important part which was left out, that I am the Chancellor, founder and Chancellor of the Islamic Online University, uh, which currently has over 200,000 students and for which I was uh, named as one of the 500 most influential Muslims in the world. So this university uh, is, inshallah, is available to the Ummah, the goal behind it is to spread Islamic knowledge and knowledge in general to the world, making it as accessible as possible. So after the program, if you have an opportunity <coughs> to check out the university, uh, it's, the website is www.iou.edu.egm. Anyway, on to thinking outside of the box. Um, on my way over here from Qatar, I was reading the International New York Tribune, and there was an article on the second page, which was called, Is Most of Our DNA Garbage? What does that have to do with what I'm talking about? Well, in this article, I saw what I've seen on a number of occasions, <clears throat> where a scientific view or perception gets turned on its head. It talked about the fact that the human genome uh, consisted of 3.2 billion bases, and this is after, of course, uh, Crick and Watson's discovery back in the 50s, discovery of the uh, DNA structure, double helix, etc. And that opened up the door to studying basically how living things uh, grow and how they reproduce themselves. <clears throat> anyway, after a, a number of decades of study, um, they came up with uh, the analysis of the human genome, which they said consisted of 3.2 billion bases, but in the process, in studying the genomes of other living creatures or plants, etc., in the world, they found that the onion's genome had five times a five times larger amount of genetic material. Right? Uh, remembering, of course, that you know, generally speaking, from an evolutionary perspective, human beings are supposed to be like the peak of the evolutionary ladder. So, 
uh, to have the onion having five times as, as much uh, genetic material than us, this was like something hard to swallow. Furthermore, actually, I want to mention that the African lungfish, it has 132 billion uh, bases, that is like 44 times that of the human being. And to step out of the, the realm of animals, the Paris Japonica flower, flower has 50 times the amount of genetic material than the humans, than human beings. So, in order to compensate for this, um, a approach to, to this became scientific circles, you know, scientific circles which of course had um, rejected or left behind in a lot of cases the concepts of, of God, God creating things in particular ways, etc. <clears throat> They said, well, you know, this material here, uh, this additional material, is actually just junk DNA. There's really no use for it. The vast majority of it, only junk. Why? Because they said the human genome consists of 20,000 genes, right? Which is only 1.2% of the genome. 98.8% is what they call non-coding DNA. So this 98.8% this is like just junk that is sitting there, left over from the evolutionary process, etc. Right? And that's why, okay, maybe a plant can have 50 times as much, because it's all junk anyway. Right? This is their conclusion. However, uh, scientists more recently, 2007, one individual by the name of John Rin at Stanford, U.S., he did a study of some of this uh, junk DNA. He took one section of it and started to analyze to see, does it have any role? Does it play any kind of a role? And sure enough, after years of, a couple of years of study, he came to find out that it does play a role. A critical enough role that if you take it out, the animal will die. Or it will cause such massive genetic uh, distortion that the animal would be paralyzed or, you know, non-functional. And that opened a new door. People were going back and say, well, well, maybe what we thought was junk, but it wasn't junk after all. I mean, I had seen that before, years before when I was in uh, school, uh, we were taught that mitochondria in the cell didn't have any purpose. It was just sitting there. They didn't know what it was for. They couldn't quite figure out. Now, if you read about mitochondria, it has all kinds of purposes and everything, but so many years back, it didn't have any purpose at all. And, you know, this is the nature of, of science. Uh, where, especially where you have people with an agenda. Whatever doesn't seem to fit in that agenda, they're going to reject it wholeheartedly. And if we look at the history, the box basically for Western civilization was religion. Religion was the box. And science was 
thinking out of the box. Science was coming up with things which challenged what religion was saying because of the fact that uh, religious representatives had adopted certain principles of science from the Greeks and Romans, early Romans, and assumed that that's the way it was. And were not ready to change it in any way, shape, or form. They linked it with the religion. So, when science progressed, and scientists started to find other answers find, to find, come to other conclusions, which now challenge those original uh, assumptions, they were tortured, burned at the stake, their books were burned, all these kinds of things happened. Middle Ages, right? Which is also known as the Dark Ages. From the Western world's perspective, this was the Dark Ages. This was where science was now struggling with religion. Eventually, the religious uh, establishment was toppled, and out of it, into the 20th century, you know, came basically a secularized view of the world and knowledge, and the box now became science. It became the new box. To talk about Religion, from that context, is talking out of the box. It was it already assumed or promoted that science was rational. It involved logic, reason, utilizing our faculties, whereas religion was irrational. It's just beliefs. No real proofs for all of this stuff, you know, it's just... Some people believing in a prophet and books and things like this. And that idea became so widespread that basically with what came to be known as secular democracy, we had a state where everything was secularized. You know, religion and religious references, etc. were taken outside or taken out of education. The educational process, you know, was free from these irrational beliefs of religion. So, the, con the, the consequence, of course, today, when we study in universities, the various subjects that we study, they, there's no religious references that are mentioned. It's supposed to be uh, completely free religion and its values. However, if we were to go back and look at the original assumptions of science being rational, and what that came to mean was that belief that there is no God is rational, and belief that there is a God is irrational. That premise requires, or should, for those who think, require some rethinking. Because the leaders of logic, 
philosophers of the past go back into ancient Greece, Plato and Aristotle, leading philosophers, they argued logically why, in fact, there must be a God. So, if it were so obviously logical that God doesn't exist, that there is no God, it didn't make sense that these giants of philosophy of the past, of the country that's supposed to have laid down the laws for logic, if A equals B and B equals C, then A must equal C. They modify this. So, they argue, basically, two arguments, which I feel requires or should be looked at. And they have been looked at, of course. But, what I would say from the get-go, thinking outside of that box, is that in fact, it is the atheist uh, belief that there is no God, which is in fact irrational. And the belief in God is what is actually rational. <clears throat> because if we look at the arguments used by those philosophers, we find them also in Islamic teachings, Quran, the, the argument from design, this is the basic argument, that finding design everywhere indicates that there must have been a designer. Because accidental design, design as a result of some kind of accident or chance, that may occur occasionally, but not everywhere, and consistently. <clears throat> and this is why the scientists initially, when they found all of this uh, DNA, excess DNA uh, there in plants and animals, 50 times greater than that of human beings, they couldn't accept that on face value. They, they had to explain it that, you know, this is just junk. Couldn't be, uh, have value. And in fact, it, they felt it supported their premise that it's all by chance that we're here, because with all that junk, you know, some of it gets utilized and you've got space with extra junk there to develop some things here and there. So there should be a lot of junk and some design, some order, etc., which is a product of chance. And that's why those who are opposing it, this new development, new approach, saying that in fact what was previously known as junk DNA is in fact uh, purposeful, it has uh, a purpose, it has benefits to human beings, and it falls under the normal pattern that we find everywhere else that there is design in 
in every day. So, the argument of those who claim that accident will produce design, we say is irrational. It is so much so to the point that if you present to, to somebody an obvious unlikely that if somebody were to drop an atomic bomb in a junkyard that after this massive explosion we would find at ground zero a Rolls Royce engine humming everything in place you just need to get in get behind the wheel and drive off Rational thinking says, no way. Absolutely no way. The irrational thinking says, well, you know if you ask the mathematicians, they will tell you that one to the billionth power, there is a chance, one in a billion, billion zeros you put in front of it, one, as long as you can put a one there, then it means it could happen. That is the irrational approach. Reality, of course, is that the first time you try it is really no different from the billionth time that you try it. It's not going to happen. Ever. And that's what rational people believe. On the other hand, if we look at this argument, which proposes that there is no beginning to the events, chain of events that brought us into being. There's no beginning. The early philosophers, Aristotle, argued that there had to be a beginning. There must be a point. To say that there is no beginning is basically to say that there was no beginning in time, it's eternal. It's like to say that there is no beginning. In fact, in which case, how did we get here? Our presence here is proof that there really is a beginning. Like the dominoes, we call this the domino argument. You line up all the dominoes, you don't push the first one. Are they going to fall? There has to be someone to push that first domino to call cause all of them to fall. And that one who pushes the first one cannot be also a domino. Problem. If it's a domino, then it's like all the others, waiting for someone outside of the world of the dominoes to start that process going. It has to be. So, this line of reasoning from both the issue of design and the issue of a beginning to things, this points towards the existence of a creator. This is the rational conclusion. 
one who was not a part of the creation who caused the creation to take place. And of course, once you accept that, then comes the big question, so what was the purpose of our creation? For those who deny creation, deny that God created, there is no purpose. <laughs> We're no different from the dolphin, the elephant, the sheep, etc. They look at it all the same. You know, we have some advantages, they have other advantages, etc. And just by chance that we have developed brains which give us some kind of control over the rest. Otherwise, what's the difference between us and them? And, of course, when you say that, you also do away with uh, right and wrong. Right and wrong, if it's all by chance, we're all here by chance, it's right and wrong issues, maybe a non-issue. Right is whatever you can do. Might is right. Whatever you can do, you can get away with, that's what's right. Others may try to stop you, and if their numbers are greater, then okay, you don't. And of course, that puts us in the same realm as the animals, survival of the fittest, the strongest will survive. But for most people, in looking at this situation, they prefer to attribute it all back to God. And that there is a purpose for us being here. So thinking outside of the box, for those people who have entered the scientific box, have lost sight or awareness or consciousness of what is outside, this is the point which we as human beings need to come to grips with today in our times. Because the educational system, secularized, values removed, becomes very dangerous. And much of what we see in the world today, in terms of corruption, uh, devastation, terrorism, all these other things, in my view goes back to this way of looking at life, the way of survival of the fittest. In fact, we need to rethink this idea of education without morality values. But in fact, this needs to be brought back into education. So that as scientists or whatever, we do have a moral compass which could or would prevent us from doing some of the horrendous things that are being done, have been done in 
the last century and centuries before. One may ask, but how do we bring morality to mathematics? 2 plus 2 equals 4. Where is the morality in that? Well, how you teach 2 plus 2 equals 4 is where the morals come in. You can say that if a person works hard and earns 2 ringgits, and they work harder the next day and earn another 2 ringgits, they now have 4 ringgits. As Muslims, we say four halal ringgits. Means it's good. Or you could steal two ringgits. And later on, steal another two ringgits. And now you also have four ringgits. But there are four haram ringgits. And this is just a simplistic way of looking at it, but in the end, whatever is presented in the classroom, if that consciousness is there, in which the moral guidelines, which have been promoted by religions historically, is brought back into the classroom, I believe we would be heading for a better world than we're in today. That this represents a major area which society needs to look at seriously. Bringing morality back into the classroom. It has a place, it has a very important place. And then this morality is not the sole claim of Islam, morality, those moral principles, the vast majority of them are shared by all religions. So, it is something that all societies, not just as we Muslims, with the majority here, vast majority, may come to realize, come to understand the need it is a need of human society in general. Because we are at a crucial point in human civilization's development and there are those that are in power, those powers that be are taking us to the brink of destruction. How can we turn that around? Ultimately, I believe that it is through re-education. Education from a moral perspective. And if we deal with the question that is usually raised when religion comes up, the question, well, if God is good and he's all-powerful, 
Where did the evil come from? That's the rational argument for saying, well, there couldn't be a God. As long as God is good and you've got evil, unless you believe you have an evil God, then how do you explain it? Somebody explain it? Where did the evil come from? Somebody. Okay. The evil also came from God. But if God is a good God, how is evil coming from? The absence of God within us which gives rise to evil. Okay. Sounds nice. <laughs> um, but if God created the world, did not God create the absence? I think we can't get away from that. Without good, without evil, we can't know what is evil or good. Like without the opposite good, we, we won't know what is evil. Why is it so important for us to know? Yes. Pardon? As thirst creates the need for water, evil creates the need for good. That sounds interesting also. <laughs> but let us say you go ahead. But can our minds function without or beyond God's control? Uh, but I believe that if He gives us the free will, then yes, we do have our own judgment of whether or not we want to believe in God. That is beyond God's control. Well, you see, once you talk about what's beyond God's control, then the question comes what? is your God, a God who doesn't have control, is the all-powerful God, as we said. He's, he's all-powerful and he's good. Either he's all-powerful or he's not all-powerful. If he's not all-powerful, that means that there's someone else or some being else or something else which is more powerful than him, that we say, well, that's the one that's really God. Well, he shouldn't have the power to control So the evil comes by the chance that he has given us, that he has permitted us. So he permitted it to take place. Then it's from him. The point that 
resolves this issue is that evil is relative. Evil is relative. God has permitted whatever evil takes place as he has permitted whatever good takes place. He controls everything. However, his permission of what is evil is not for the evil itself, but for the good that comes from it. We live a life in which we do what may be considered evil things in order to produce good things. For example, if somebody wanted to take a long needle and stick it in your arm, you would try to prevent them. That's an evil thing. It causes pain, suffering, evil. However, when you go to the dentist and the dentist pulls out that same long needle at the end of a syringe and wants to stick it in your gum and it's painful, you let it happen. You accept it. Now, that evil that you're accepting is not for the evil, the pain that comes from it. You're accepting it to prevent a greater harm. So this idea of what they call the silver lining of the cloud, you know, this idea is the basic concept behind God permitting evil in the world. Of course, somebody will come up and say, well, okay, well, what is the good that was in the tsunami? <laughs> right? the tsunami hit this part of the world, so many people died. What's the good in that? Or Hitler, what he did? The fact that you can't see the good in it, does that mean there is no good? That's the point. It's just like the scientists who said, we can't see any benefit in this DNA. It's junk. We call it junk DNA. No, simply because you don't have knowledge of something. That doesn't mean you have knowledge of its non-existence. No, you just don't know. That's all. That's as much as you can say, I have no knowledge of it. You can say, I have no knowledge of any good that is there in the tsunami. Or Hitler. But that doesn't mean that there wasn't good. It just means you didn't know about it. That's all. So this becomes a point of belief. But that point of belief is also based in the real world. It's not like a, a, an irrational belief. Like the belief that if you put a hundred monkeys in a cage and give them Arabic typewriters and an unlimited amount of paper, if they keep banging away at those keys with their elbows, feet, noses, eventually one of them is going to type out the whole Quran for you. That is irrational. This example is usually given in the past of the Bible. Since most of your Muslims, they said Quran. 
We don't believe that. That's irrational. We don't have any example of that occurring in our lives. So we can say, yeah, since it happened over there, then it can happen over here. But this issue of what we perceive to be evil turning out to be good, we're having that all the time around us. How many times something happened and you said, oh man, why, why? Next day, oh wow, because of that, so much came out of it. We all experience that. It's not something foreign, distant, you know, philosophical. It's real. We live it all the time. So, this argument doesn't take belief in God into the irrational. Thinking outside of the box for those who are caught up in the recent or modern trend of atheism involves rethinking, relooking at this reality. And its consequences in terms of the future of civilization, in my view, are critical. <laughs> this is why uh, I've been involved personally in a number of educational institutions seeking to bring morality back into the educational process. And not to bring it as it was brought to us in a colonial fashion, where religion is taught separately, and then your modern subjects are taught by themselves. And of course, the majority of the subjects will be modern subjects. But instead, integrating, integrating the two. And that's what we see when we go back into history. During the period which is known as the Dark Ages in Europe, where there was this big struggle between you know, the church and the scientists, it didn't exist amongst Muslims. That was the golden age. Andalus, Baghdad, where scientists were gathering the knowledge which was taken from various civilizations, adding to that knowledge, and they became flourishing centers of learning. So the leading scholars who led the breakaway in Europe had either the teachers or they themselves went to these centers and got learning from there. The scientific method was not invented in the West, it was already in practice amongst Muslims. So, the integration ultimately <coughs> is, in my view, what is ideal. And what you as students should consider as you move towards your own graduation, looking at yourselves and looking at what are your goals? As students, and this is something I've asked students, Muslim students, all over the world, as well as non Muslim students. You know, why are you taking this subject? You're studying medicine, you're studying engineering. Why? Invariably, I didn't hear anybody say, because I want to serve humanity. Nobody. One person thinks that it and everybody else laughed. Because people are here in this institution because of that 
certificate which you will graduate with that you believe will earn you lots of money. Your goals are secularized. It's just about the money. Nottingham, University of Nottingham, that's a British university. It's got status, you know, not like University of Malaysia. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here. Want to get that paper? This is the driving force. But this is dangerous. This is the product of the secularization of education. It's dangerous. Because what tends to happen is that once that becomes the goal, the goal is to get that piece of paper and to earn the big bucks. That is the driving force. Then we become unscrupulous. Our guiding principle is Machiavellian. By any means necessary. Whatever it takes. As a result, we fall into the global state of students. We become cheaters. We cheat. That's the easy way. To make sure you're going to pass one way or another, you will cheat. And I went to many schools. I just recently in Pakistan. I talked at one of the universities. And I asked the students. And these were like 99.9% Muslims. I asked them, the medical college, the engineering college, I asked them, who among you can raise his hand or her hand and say, Wallahi, by God, I have never cheated on any test or examination. In the medical college, one girl raised her hand out of about 400 students. In the engineering college, one boy raised his hand out of 300 students. And I don't want to embarrass you by asking that. <laughs> In case your administrators are around or whatever. But the reality is that when we look at society today and we say, you know, what's killing us is all this corruption. You know, there's so much corruption, you know, bribery and all kinds of stuff that's going on. In government, in governance systems around us. It's almost corruption. But the reality is that if we are in that state, can we change it? If nobody here can raise his hand, what is the future? Garbage in, garbage out. That's reality. So if we are dreaming about changing the world, or we talk about it sometimes, when we feel philosophical, changing the world. Reality on the ground is something else. But 
Know that we will never change this world unless we change ourselves. That's the bottom line. As Allah said in the Quran, in Allah, Allah, God does not change the condition of people until they change themselves. That's the bottom line. And this is where, on a practical level, we have to think outside of the box. The box is getting that degree by any means necessary. Which means by the easiest means necessary. That is cheating. Means that we don't have a moral compass. When we get into those positions, whatever, whether we are legal, medical, engineering, whatever field we end up in, if somebody pays us enough money, we'll do it. Most of the time, we'll do it. We'll break the rules and society will never change. So, this is why I request you, implore you to think outside of this box that you're in. The box of student life. Because what you do here and now will determine who you are tomorrow and in the future. So, the only hope for us is if we decide to step out of that box and reestablish for ourselves a moral compass whether it is through the teachings of Islam, which call to that very clearly, as all religions call, the majority of you are Muslims, you know, Prophet Muhammad had said, Man Rashana. Whoever cheats is not of us. It's not a true Muslim. Their Islam is fake. Fake Islam. And I don't know in Buddhism what the uh, Chinese terms are or Hindi terms, but I'm sure similar statements are there. Because cheating is universally recognized as evil. It's a universal evil. So this was just a reminder you today to try to think outside of the box in all these various ways. Don't get caught up in what is common. Be open-minded enough to make a change because change requires open-mindedness. Not to get locked down into tradition, custom, which is in fact not beneficial to our societies. And 
I thank you for coming. And uh, I hope that some of what I've said made sense to you. And God willing, inshallah, you will try to apply it in your lives. I think it's Q&A. Zakallah khair of the Bilal, may Allah reward you abundantly for this great talk. As for now, we'll be having 30 minutes of Q&A. Uh, the ushers will be helping you, passing the mic around. Uh, for the Q&A, please make sure that the questions are related to the topic discussed tonight. Shall we start? Well, let, we can say that if we run out of questions related to the topic, then we can look at some outside of the topic. But please keep the questions short, precise, and clear. We don't want people giving speeches in the question and answer time. If you want to give a speech, we'll arrange another talk for you tomorrow. Okay? Uh, I would like to just uh, make sure that I got you right. So it means that there's no evil. The, the evil does not exist. It's just that we don't see the good in it. Is that correct? Well, it is evil relative to us. What we have done, where we chose to do evil, and we did that evil, that is pure evil relative to us. But when God permitted that evil to take place, there was something good for which he permitted it. Doesn't mean that there is no evil. I'm not saying Hitler was a good guy. Zakallah khair, Alhamdulillah. Can we take a question from the sister side? Salam, can I no mic there? Do I need it? Well, if you want to shout, go ahead. Thank you. 
but it's very difficult to speak from a perspective of integrating education. And I wanted to know, as an advice to you, how would I communicate that? That it's important not only for that, there's a lot that is taken out of that. Well, you know, there is knowledge uh, which is age appropriate. When you're introducing certain issues with regards to reproduction, biology, um, with children, uh, there's one approach which says, tell them everything. In fact, get dolls that are anatomically correct and show them. You know, it's North America. You go into kids' classrooms in primary school and then they show you that. Dolls having sex. Well, I think that's going overboard. So we don't want to go all the way there. Though the argument was that once they know about this, then the chat, you know, the the teenage pregnancies are going to come down, and the, you teach them also about uh, you know using uh, condoms and all these other kinds of things. You know, so they were even in New York, they were they put the condom machines in primary school. You know, so uh, this we feel is it goes to an extreme. And in fact, studies uh, I know in Australia, there were studies in Australia, it, it showed that the, the it didn't reduce the um, the rise in uh, sexually transmitted diseases and all. In fact, it increased because you are giving them an early start. Right? You're giving them the details. You showed them all the. Everything so? They're ready to experiment, even more so than they would have on their own if you didn't get into all of that. So there is a point that where we have to strike a balance between giving them useful knowledge, but not necessarily the whole picture. Because in so many other things that we teach in, 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 um, in physics, and what we teach that in, to kids in, in grade school, in primary, it's not what we teach them in grade 12, you know. So we're teaching them similar things, but certain details are left out because it's not appropriate for them at that age level. They can't understand it, they can't make use of it, it's not useful for them. So I think it's about, you know, finding the, the balance between the two. Um, where exactly is that point? This goes back to now, you know, child psychologists, educationalists, you know, who can identify that point. But I agree with you that to just cut it all off, you know, so the kids think that, okay, if you, get, if you kiss somebody, you're going to get pregnant, you know, this has gone to some extreme, as well as going to the other extreme of giving them everything. And I'm uh, currently in Hargeza, if you don't know. That's someone else. Welcome, Alpita. Bilal, can we take a question from the brothers? So, my question is, to what extent does the reward of doing something evil justify us doing the right? 
and justify us doing that action. Thank you. Doing by the doing the action. Doing the action. And how do we not conform to what has already been laid down before us, such as living in a country that has interest and work, or doing business where the other party expects something for us to gain the business? Thank you. Okay, you put two questions in one. Okay. Anyway, your first question concerning uh, to what degree can we justify doing something evil for the good that comes from the evil? I would say that what is traditionally or standardly recognized as something evil, we don't go and try to do it for the good that we would like to see come from it. We don't go and blow up the Twin Towers, you know, because after the Twin Towers fell, the number of people who accepted Islam increased by fivefold in America. <laughs> so I've had some people from, you know, that way of thinking come and say, look at the good. <laughs> I said, please, the evil of it is far greater than the good. You know, that is just, God is great, He can take good out of any evil. But that doesn't justify, you know, taking other people's lives in that fashion yeah, by whoever is involved with it. So, what is obviously evil, we don't go and do for supposed good. When we said that we do in our daily lives things which are evil outside of that context. As we said, taking that needle, sticking it in your arm, you know, unless you are a masochist, you know, you're going to say no. Because that's obvious. It's obvious evil. Somebody come and stick a needle in your arm, where, where is that considered to be good? Only in that circumstance where the good that comes from it is clearly known because you're being inoculated against a disease or something like this. Or your gum is being numb so that they can extract your tooth to prevent the greater harm. So, uh, I think the lines are fairly clear. They don't really involve too much philosophizing. It's very clear. The other question, which was, again, what is it? How do we How do Oh, right. Where the society as a whole is built on uh, bribery and corruption, etc. You know, how do we... Uh, Go against that. How do we survive? People come to me and told me, you know, this is my business. You know, if you don't do this, you fail. But told about in that case, find another business. Yes, more difficult. You find another business where you can avoid this to be able to compete. Now, in the case uh, where you are bribing to get your right. This is, a, this is the exception in Islamic law. If you are bribing to get your right, then this is not considered to be sinful for you. It's sinful for the one who takes that bribe. 
because the principle of bribery being prohibited in the Islamic law is because it allows people to get what is not their right. That's why people bribe normally. That's the normal way that people go. You want something which belongs to somebody else, or is going to go to somebody else, you pay them under the table, you get it. It really wasn't your right. That is the evil. Where people are cheated out of the opportunity because you have done this. Whereas if you have goods that you've had shipped into the country, they're in the customs, and the customs officer says, you want to receive them? I need some lunch money. Well, in that case, if you stand your ground, your goods are rotten and you suffer. For you to give him what he has asked for in order that you get your goods in, which was your right, then this is permissible. So you need to know the lines where permissibility exists and where it is impermissible. Where it's impermissible, then you have to stand your ground. Even if it's the most common practice, change your profession, change your business, whatever, go for it. And, as I said, being an educationist myself, we need to get back into the classrooms and put that moral compass back in to each and every class that is taught, regardless of the subject. In order to produce a generation that unlike yourselves, if I ask them that question, the big question, all the hands would raise, except a few. Or if you have written questions, you can pass it on. Okay, while we receive the questions from the sisters, let me take another question from the brothers. Please pass the mic if you want. Are you giving somebody else a voice? So, uh, uh, I wanted to ask, um, it's kind of like playing devil's advocate here. I agree with your argument of the integration of morality into the educational system. But I wanted to ask, uh, what would you say to those who argue that morality should be taught by parents or guardians? And that it's not the education systems, nor the educators' responsibility. I would say that it is the responsibility of the society as a whole. To say that it's the responsibility only of the children uh, is to fail from the very beginning. Uh, sorry, only of the parents is to fail from the beginning. Because the time which is spent in the class is far greater than the time that the children spend with their parents. So you're already on the losing end. And that educational system, <clears throat> without that moral compass, you know, it will promote 
that selfish uh, me, myself approach to life, business, everything is just about me, what I can get for myself at any means necessary. So I, I would not agree that it should be only in the hands of the parents and not to be responsible to others. No, it's the responsibility of the society as a whole. Everyone has to play. Yes, the parents should play a role in it. And the educators should play their role. The school system, the books that are being produced, everything should work towards that. Because I don't think anybody, anybody would say it's not a good thing to put in every single class from kindergarten to grade 12, put in every single class moral messages. Who would say that's not a good thing? I, I can't imagine. Everybody agrees that's a good thing. And the student who comes out of that system will, will not be corruptible. That person who has, it's been reinforced all the way along for those 12 years of education, I would say the vast majority, you couldn't corrupt them. Then. You would now have your politicians or your whatever who can really honestly serve society. The question says, you compare animals and human beings. Yes, indeed animals follow some pattern. Humans have a brain. We can do what we want and take our own decision. Have empathy, take good moral decision. Why do I need a book or a said God to tell me how I should live my life? Well, if it's left up to you, as the law said, you know, if it was left up to human beings to uh, determine what is in fact good, there would be corruption in the land. Because human beings, our morals change from time to time. You know, what may be bad yesterday can become good today. We tend to look at good in a subjective way, not objective. We look at it as, if it's good for me, it's good. If it's bad for me, it's bad. So that's why it can't be left up to you. Because if everybody is just going for themselves that way, you have chaos. You have chaos. So that good, one may say, okay, couldn't we do it by democracy? Well, democracy is dangerous in this matter. Right? It's dangerous in this matter. Why? Because you're going according to the majority. If the majority feels something is good, then it's good. If they feel it is bad, then it's bad. It means again, same thing. It could be bad yesterday and become good today. It could be good yesterday and become bad today. Now, either something is really bad, or it isn't. And this is where the element of divine revelation comes. God identifies for human beings, because it is God who created human beings, knows their societies, knows their, their how it will develop, knows the human intellect, emotionally, psychologically, in all its facets, and can define for human beings what is bad. And the key is, in 
the revelation identifying what is bad. The rest is good. The vast majority of things are good. But there is that element of bad, evil, which needs to be identified. And if it's evil, it remains evil. Because if it's ultimately, if God sees it as evil, believe ultimately that it is evil for human society regardless of when or where. So we need a standard which is going to stand. Otherwise, we just go with the wind. So what, for example, years ago was considered to be pornography back in the 60s. Now it's considered to be art and expression and all these other things today. But in reality, pornography is pornography. But now it's entertainment. And is the society better for it? It's far worse. Psychological take a question on the first thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> Means we get to go home early. <laughs> and there's a question from the sisters that says, things such as tsunamis or famines, etc., have been said to come about in places where sins or wrongdoings has increased by people. What is your opinion in regard to this? Could be, and it could not be. Sometimes there's a correlation, sometimes there's not. I don't want to say that every disaster that happens is because of you know, bad things that people in place. So that's why they cause it for themselves. No. Because some of those disasters may be man-made also. And sometimes it is, you could say, an act of God. And they may not be evil in the society in general, they may be evil. There is always elements of evil in all of our societies anyway. So we can't say there is no justification that something may happen. But I wouldn't want to just connect it straight across the board that way, meaning that only evil people have disasters. Do you have any questions from the other side? Okay. Now you don't have to ask a question just for the sake of asking a question, right? Um, you mentioned jobs earlier. So how do we look deep into jobs and what should we look for in choosing a job? We look for the job which has benefit to the society, first and foremost. Because the Prophet, may God's peace be upon him, said, Khairun nas and Farahun nas. 
the best of people are those who are most beneficial to the society. So the job choice should be one in terms of the benefit. If there's greater good coming to the society, then that's the type of job that you try to see. One which is only good for you, but really when you look at it in terms of the society, it may be harmful, then that's the one you need to avoid. So look in terms of benefit to society. And to yourself, not to say you forget yourself altogether, there's no benefit to you, just, you know, that's like volunteering and because you have to provide a living for yourself, your family, etc. So it has to be reasonable. But look in terms of the degree of benefit to the society. The greater the degree, the better the job in the side of God. There's a question from a sister side saying, if morals and good things are preached by all religions, then what is special about Islam? <clears throat> well, that's for people to look at. You look at the different religions, and they share common values, and then you look at the differences. Where do they differ? And in the same way, when you're choosing your jobs, you choose the one which is most beneficial. You look at the different religions, you look to see the one which seems to encompass human needs the most, what is going to benefit the society, benefit the individual the most. And, of course, <clears throat> personally, I found that Islam was the one. But it's the choice that everybody, every individual has to make for himself or herself. And even though you might say, well, you know, I'm a Muslim already, I was born a Muslim, but in fact, actually, you have to make a choice. Because Islam cannot be inherited. I know you have a thing here, you know, has to do with nationality or Malay or Muslim and all this other stuff, but from a revelational perspective, from the perspective of Quran and Sunnah, understanding, a Muslim, one who would be doing what God wishes, seeking to live a life which is as close to godly as possible, is one who has to make a choice. A choice to be a Muslim. Because Islam means submission of human will to God. So you cannot inherit submission. So though we tend to think, yeah, my parents are Muslim, so I'm Muslim. My family, my society, all of this, they're Muslim, that's why I'm Muslim. But that's not really good enough. You know, in the end, it will fail you. But that's why you think you're a Muslim. You should be a Muslim because you understood the teachings and you have accepted those teachings and intend to live by them. There are a lot of things that we can do now and in the future to benefit the society and the community. Uh, but is it okay if we use pirate software such as Crack Photoshop and operating system, Windows 7 and so on uh, for our studies and to benefit the society by, yeah, by using the computer? That's all. Thank you.
Well, you know, that's the evil for the good. <laughs> Supposed good, right? But this is one. I mean, either those laws of copywriting were in fact to prevent a greater evil, or they were not. If they were, and it's agreed upon by societies across the world, that things should be copyrighted to protect the interests of those people who have produced it, etc. Then, for you to break that copyright principle and take for yourself, uh, supposedly to benefit the society, I would say, no, that's wrong. You know, you, you're saying it's supposedly to benefit the society, but in the end, it's really to benefit you. When you, when you come down to it, because you saved yourself the costs and things involved. But how much are you really doing? No. So, I would not uh, agree with that approach where we have those laws in place. We have alternatives. There are alternative systems. They may not work as well as the pirated. See, this is the point. Those of you that are into this, you all know. There are alternatives there. But because uh, you want it easy, free, you go for the uh, parity. So you get the full benefit without paying its price. Or paying a price. So, it is evil. It is amongst the evils of modern uh, technology. And I would advise you to avoid it. You spend that extra money to get that system, yeah, it costs more, but just know that what you have done is the right thing. And as Allah says in the Quran, there is no reward for good except good. You did the good thing, you did the right thing, you will receive what is good, what is right. You do the evil thing, then evil is coming. I would like to have questions from our non-Muslim guests, either brothers or sisters. If you have any questions, we would like to give you the chance to come up and ask. So far, the questions are coming from Muslims. So. There's a question saying, Muslims say that the purpose of life is taught to them by God. Like the manufacture of a product determines the product's purpose. But how can they compare an inanimate object to a human who has a brain and can think for themselves? I think I am capable of deciding a purpose for my life. Why do I need God to do it for me? Well, it's not a question of what you are able to identify as purpose. Because 
If you are going to identify for yourself that purpose, and everybody's to do the same, then you have in the end chaos in society. Because if you feel your purpose is this, and I feel my purpose is something else, and everybody has a different feeling as to what their purpose is, and we have to work together, then that breeds chaos. And either there is an objective purpose, and it's not all subjective, or, as I said, chaos. That's the alternative. So, you as a human being, who doesn't know all of the issues regarding your own creation and the world around you and the future, the past, your knowledge is very, very limited, then to say, you can decide for yourself why you need God, I would say that is somewhat arrogant. Somewhat arrogant. You know, like a child, their purpose at different stages will vary. You know, if they're just left on their own in terms of purpose, their purpose will be whatever benefits themselves. The purpose is to get as much good to self as possible. And whatever is pleasurable to self. Unless you are given insight into what is benefit to the society, and understand that even if it's not beneficial to yourself, because it is beneficial to the greater society, then that is in fact the better thing. We do need guidance. Human beings need guidance. Do we have any questions for our non-Muslim guests? So far? No? Um, in terms of what you said about the moral values in education, I see what you said, I see it's a good idea, but who, who should get to decide what those moral values are and how to teach them? Because obviously with there being so many people in the world, people have different beliefs. So who gets to decide what the moral values are that are taught? Well, I would say that uh, the country that has the educational system, they use what is available to themselves. But in reality, I would say, even if you go across the world in terms of moral principles, uh, people, people are not that much, they don't differ that much in terms of the basic moral principles. And psychologists, in general, psychologists, they can identify for you what are the moral issues of a 5-year-old, what are the moral issues of a 10-year-old, 15-year-old, 25, you know, the type, I mean, analyzing people, how they interact in a different, then these issues can easily be identified. They're known. They're not hidden. It's not rocket science that we have to go to figure out and philosophize. No. I mean, there may be higher issues that philosophy may enter into, but the basic things, the basic things of honesty, of fairness, you know, of equality, of, you know, all of the, the, the basic ones which we agree on in the society. You know, this needs to be put 
into the classroom. We build laws on these same principles. You know, the majority of the laws in, in most countries do seek to protect those moral principles. Even though there may be corruption in the country, etc., etc., people don't follow those laws, whatever, that's not the issue. But, uh, you know, it's not that difficult to identify them. And they don't vary that much from religion to religion, from society to society. But do you not think maybe it will be difficult to like, draw the line? If you give, people give, give an example. The, the basic ones will obviously be. Give, give an example. Uh, I don't know, I can't think of any, but yeah, just the point is like if you give people that power, then like, the basic stuff is obvious, but it's, I don't know, it's, it just, I'm just maybe wondering, you know, I think it could go the wrong way. And, like, they could. I don't know. I'm, I'm now, in my view, it's, it's, it's for the greater good of society for them to, to do that, to bring it back into the classroom. And, and that is something, whether a person is an atheist, or whether they are Muslim, or Christian, or Jew, whatever, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, there are basic principles, I would say 80%, if not more, of the moral <coughs> principles for human beings are common. There may be a 20% or a 10% where they differ. And that's where now the society, depending on what the majority of the people are, whatever, in that society, they may lean towards one or the other. But for the main uh, body of moral values and principles, the, the governments of the, all the various countries, they have enshrined these things in laws. They're there in the law. They may be the basis of your, your overall legal system. I mean, like, like Western law, for example, is taken out of the Bible. You know, and maybe now they say we don't refer to it as biblical anymore. They've taken the thought out of it, but it's, it's built into the law system. You know, the, the courts, etc., which establish justice are based on these principles. So I don't think it's very hard to find them. It's just that they're not taught in the classes anymore. You know, maybe an ethics class. There's a difference between, you know, studying, um, law, and you have one, one aspect which is called legal ethics, right? So you deal with it at that time. This approach is not helpful because it, it, it makes it seem as if legal ethics is something separate and different and no, the concept, concept should be incorporated in all aspects of legal learning. You know, I mean, I, I've just given an example uh, in, in another field, in the field of marketing, this is where probably you have the biggest challenges, moral challenges. Now, people will take marketing. Because so much of marketing is dependent on deception. So much of it. That it is a real challenge to come through a, a course in marketing without uh, being affected. So, that whole study would have to take a drastic, drastic train in order to bring it in line with the moral principles. I mean, that's a particular field, separate, you know. But those principles are not hidden principles. It's just that because morality was taken out, then deception seems good. They don't call it deception. They call it good marketing. The best salesman is the one who's able to sell 
sand to the desert Arabs, <laughs> or snowballs to the Eskimos. You know, that's the great salesman. No, it's not. He had to deceive them to do it. Uh, since we are running short of time, I have two questions here with me, but I would like to extend the chance to the female side if they have any questions, especially our members of guests. If you'd like to put the question forward before I go for these final two questions. Um, the question says, Scientology benefits humanity and society the most. Is Islam better than Scientology? How? Oh. Well, it depends on what you mean by Scientology. It's uh, Albert's uh, thing. The first last question they're referring to, what's his name? Hubbard, uh, somebody the other, Hubbard. He's a science fiction writer who decided Scientology. Is that what they're referring to, or they mean something else? Well, in order to to go into Scientology, if they meant this, you know, relatively recent twentieth century uh, religious sect, which was put together by a science fiction writer Ron R. President Ron, somebody Hubbard. Uh, in my belief, uh, from what I've read of it. Islam is superior. Islam is superior to it. That's why I became a Muslim after being a Muslim. The final question for tonight. We are not all Muslims on this earth. We do not believe that we all have the same purpose. Yet, there is no chaos. I can do good and eat good without believing in Islam. Well, I would never say that the only way you can do good and receive good is to be a Muslim. I think if that were the fact, there wouldn't be any Muslims left in the world. There would be no non-Muslims left in the world if that were the fact. So I'm not proposing that, supposing that. Um, to say that uh, people find their own purposes and it is uh, the world is fine. Well, I, I don't know. I, I, reading the newspaper, it doesn't seem to me that the world is fine at all. It seems to me that the world is in chaos. And it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. So, I mean, I guess it's a relative perspective that you may be looking at it from. Maybe you were born and raised here in Malaysia. You never left Malaysia. But uh, from my travels around the world, I would not say that the situation is getting better. My point of view, my perspective, I see it as getting worse. Jazakallah khair, Dr. Bilal, for this enlightening lecture for tonight. I would like to thank all of the brothers and sisters, our uh, guests, numbers of guests, for attending this lecture tonight. And I would like all of you to attend the other lectures that we are having throughout the week with our renowned speakers, Dr. Bilal and Brother Mustafa. So please stay tuned and please do attend. Uh, 
outside the lecture hall, we are having books which are available for you, authored by Dr. Bilal himself. So please give it a look. And if you are interested, please contact Islamic Society. Uh, for the Muslims, Aisha uh, prayer will be in 15 minutes, inshallah, in the Islamic Center. I should also mention that uh, for those who might be interested in looking at the Islamic Online University, uh, you can contact the Islamic Society also to get the details of the uh, email address. There are free courses there, um, Islamic Diploma, which is free, absolutely free, no cost. Uh, the majority of our students are studying in that. We have about 195,000 students studying in that. Uh, and then we also offer bachelor's courses in information technology, in uh, Islamic banking and finance, also in psychology and education, as well as in Sharia. Everything is taught in English. Do take note of that.